Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome back to Wellness with Liz Earle and our menopause special. Now, today I am delighted to be joined in my studios by a true leading light in this field, someone whose work I hugely admire and who is so highly sought after, it's very, very hard to get an appointment with. So I am genuinely delighted to welcome consultant gynaecologist Mr Nick Panay with us today. Now, Nick has, I think, possibly the longest introduction I have ever had to read to this. So here goes. As director of the West London Menopause and PMS Centre at Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea and Westminster and Chelsea and Westminster hospitals, Nick can most often be found heading up busy clinical research teams which publish widely. And he presents at scientific meetings, trains health professionals at all levels. Much of his team's research has focused on improving the understanding and management of menopause, premature menopause, PMS, PCOS, new HRT preparations and complementary therapies. Now, on top of his day job, he's currently a trustee and part of the Medical Advisory Committee of the British Menopause Society, honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College London, guest professor at the Beijing Obstetrics and Gynaecology Hospital. He is also the Secretary General of the International Menopause Society. Talk about multitasking. I am frankly exhausted just reading all this, let alone actually doing any of it. And somehow he has found time to squeeze in a podcast recording to talk specifically and at so much length about all kinds of things, including compounding bioidentical HRT that we see so often for sale in private practice. I know that we're going to go into a deep dive here. So thank you so much, Nick, for being here. Liz, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you. And I've known you sort of on email and I've stalked you and your work, I think, for the last sort of year or two writing about menopause. And anybody who has done similarly will know, you know, what a great privilege it is to have you here with us and to unpick some of that great brain. So can we go back to the beginning? Why women's healthcare? Why did you specialise in that? It goes back to when I started thinking about what sort of research I wanted to do in obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, and I recognised that there was a great unmet need in managing women with menopause and also severe premenstrual syndrome. And I was fortunate enough to meet my colleague and mentor, John Studd, with whom I did research. Um, and really, that launched my career uh, into this area. Um, it gave me a great platform from an evidence-based perspective to then be able to advise my patients on the best way to manage these distressing symptoms. And it also made me realize that there is an awful lot of work still to be done uh, utilizing public health resources 
to help women with these problems. Mm. What do you see most of in your clinic? I see... Uh, clinics, I should say. Yes. Many, many clinics. <laughs> um, I see a combination of uh, uh, menopause and premenstrual syndrome and also premature ovarian insufficiency. So this is premature menopause where women go through menopause before the age of 40. Um, we separate out the clinics so that we have general menopause in the mornings and usually premature ovarian insufficiency and premenstrual syndrome in the afternoons. And what is causing that early menopause for most women? Well, the frustrating thing, Liz, is that we still don't know what causes it in the majority of cases where it occurs spontaneously. Really? It's probably a genetic cause, and there's a lot of work going into that at the moment to try and unravel the causes. Uh, we're working with some colleagues at King's at the moment, Janice Reimer, Brianna Cloak, um, and looking at the genome um, of women who go, undergo uh, a very early premature ovarian insufficiency at the age of 30 or below, and how that compares to that of the general population to try and find what we call candidate genes. Mm. But we also look after a population of women who undergo what we call iatrogenic menopause. So that's where they've had treatment for leukemias, lymphomas, other reasons to have surgery, which unfortunately has uh, resulted in early menopause. Mm. And hysterectomy, of course, will plunge women straight into a surgical menopause, will it? If they've had the ovaries removed, right. yes. Yeah. Um, but even hysterectomy where the ovaries are conserved can be associated with an earlier menopause transition. Mm. And for all those women with all those many different issues, is there a common form of treatment? Are we looking at hormone replacement? Uh, for the women with young menopause, definitely hormone replacement therapy should be the first-line intervention, the first-line treatment. Um unless there is a contraindication to them using hormone therapy. Um, Which would be what? Well, for instance, some hormone receptor positive cancers like breast cancer, mm. cancer of the womb, for instance. Yeah, so you would screen for that. But even so, even in those cases, occasionally we very carefully weigh up the pros and cons sure. and make a decision whether uh, it's justified to proceed with hormone therapy. Mm, interesting. And what would the symptoms be for a younger woman? Would it be obvious that she was having premature ovarian insufficiency? Well, obviously, one of the telltale signs is uh, erratic periods or cessation of periods. But so often those symptoms are being put down to loss of weight or stress. Yeah, stress, and, yeah. Um, and perhaps there's a delay in uh, the woman seeking help and there's a delay in making the diagnosis. Uh, and so we encourage women who have erratic periods to come forward sooner rather than later to have the causes uh, investigated. They may not necessarily present with the classic symptoms of mm. hot flushes and sweats. They may notice right. a change in their mood or their cognitive functioning, or they may notice a change in their skin or hair. We are uh, currently uh, undertaking a big uh, research programme into women with premature ovarian insufficiency by utilising a register not just a national, but an international register of experts that are entering data so that we can understand how women with this condition actually present uh, the interventions that we're using uh, and the outcomes that we're achieving to make sure you know, that, that we're getting it right. And is there anything that we can do to naturally stimulate or re-trigger the production of our own hormones? Or is it really a question of having to supplement and top them up? 
Unfortunately, the, the cause is uh, the loss of follicles and the loss of eggs, uh, and therefore what we call a reduced ovarian reserve. And at the moment, there isn't a way of putting back those follicles and eggs. However, there is some very exciting work going on in Edinburgh in its early stages at the moment, where they're looking at the possibility of stimulating stem cells within the ovaries to replicate and reproduce uh, uh, follicles and reproduce eggs. But this is very much in the early stages. Mm, interesting. Mm. Now, you've obviously been working in this field for many decades, and therefore you will have seen the turbulent tales of HRT, for example, and you must have seen or been part of that shift in the early days. I remember working as a young journalist 35 years ago and hearing about Professor John Studd and his work at Chelsea and Westminster, and it just seemed that everybody was on HRT. And then suddenly we had the Women's Health Initiative study in America, the misrepresentation of data, everybody came off it. So how has it been, that kind of roller coaster up and down? Uh, you're absolutely right again, Liz, that uh, it has been a, a roller coaster. Initially, it was touted as being the universal panacea. Uh, women were rushing to their doctors, their gynecologists, to get hormone therapy uh, because there was this sort of notion that you could uh, remain feminine forever and it was all benefits and there were no potential side effects or risks. Then with the Women's Health Initiative uh, trials, we realised that if you use the wrong preparation in the wrong age group for the wrong indication, so perhaps too high a dose in too old an age group, um, then potentially there could be some risks, albeit small risks, but nonetheless significant. And so there was a, an overreaction to the yeah. data from those studies, and too many women came off their hormone therapy, women in whom they weren't at particular risk. Mm. Um, and many women were afraid uh, to go back on it or afraid to approach their GPs or their gynecologists to ask for it. I think now, though, we understand the problems that there were with those studies, that the hormone therapy wasn't properly individualised. Yes. Uh, and and uh, if you appropriately individualise hormone therapy, then you can maximise the benefits and absolutely minimise side mm. effects and risks. So my understanding is that study focused on women 65 plus who were very often taking it for the first time. And, Indeed, women, and, women, the average age was 63 and women as old as 79 were uh, being given you know, relative overdoses of hormone therapy. Yeah. And the other frustrating thing was that when the, the data were originally released, uh, they said that the data applied across all age groups. And it was uh, only five years later didn't. when they did the reanalyses and looked at the, uh, the the age groups, 50 to 59, 60 to 69, 70 to 79, that they realised that the risks were very much within the older age group. Yeah, much older. And I do know that some of the authors of that study have since publicly apologised. But of course, the damage has been done, hasn't it? We have been left with a legacy of fear. There was a legacy of fear as a result of that, and it's going to take time to repair it. I believe we are on the right track. Uh, as I say, I believe that in terms of the types of preparations that we're using, we've moved on. Uh, we're individualising therapies more, um, and people are realising, women and healthcare professionals, that if you give the right preparation for the right indication in the right woman, then uh, it's largely benefits with hardly any side effects yeah. or risks. 
And of course, just lastly, on that note, that study, of course, used oral HRT, the tablet form going through the liver, whereas now the majority of modern HRT, as I understand it, with oestrogen is the transdermal patch and gel, which seems to have no risk for breast cancer. So the route of administration is important, uh, as is the dosage. We've talked about the dosage. Um, if you go through the skin, then you avoid going through the liver. So you don't increase the risk of clotting and you don't increase blood pressure. At the moment, uh, there aren't any data to say that estrogen through the skin uh, is any different in terms of safety for the breast uh, mm -hmm. as there is for oral estrogen. However, what people often don't realize is that the progesterone component is at least as important as the estrogen, particularly from the breast and metabolic perspectives. And that if we use a more natural type of progesterone, the one that's most close, if you like, to a woman's natural progesterone, then um, it's better from the breast perspective in that there is the correct balance of proliferation to what we call apoptosis, which is the uh, control of cell replication uh, in the breast. And so you don't get an excess of proliferation. Um, and also metabolically, we see that women who have natural progesterone don't have an adverse effect on their lipids like cholesterol, uh, on their insulin levels, on the flexibility of their blood vessels. Um, so the benefits then of estrogen can come through without being, as we say, attenuated by the presence of the progestogen. That's very interesting. And I know I remember first thinking it was a typo when I first saw it, because we're talking about progestogens, which are the non-natural body identical form of progesterone versus progesterone. And as I understand it, the micronized progesterone in products like the Utrogestan capsules mm. is the body identical natural progesterone. Is that right? Absolutely right. Um, so progestogens were first created, if you like, in order that uh, the tablets were not broken down in the stomach acid uh, and could be absorbed in the small intestine. Uh, but now through a process of what we call micronization, where these uh, hormones are uh, adsorbed onto tiny microspheres within the capsules, it can transport the natural progesterone past the stomach acid into the small bowel and be absorbed appropriately. Wow. And that's why we don't need to use synthetic types of mm. progesterone or progestogens yes. uh, now uh, as much as we used to. That's really fascinating. And both the transdermal gels and patches and this micronized progesterone are derived from wild yams. Is that right? Again, so what people may not realize is that um, these hormones are derived from plant sources. You can't squeeze a yam and get progesterone <laughs> out of it or squeeze a soybean and get estrogen out of it. They still have to be converted within a laboratory. But some of the older preparations, the Premarin-type preparations, were derived from, uh, to a certain extent, from mare's urine. None of the new products that we're mm. using are derived from animal no. sources. So that's, that's a kind of a, the legacy, again, of the older-style HRT. I'm very interested, um, while I've got you here, Nick, to talk about the progesterone, 
my understanding, and it's, it may be incorrect, is that the reason women are giving progesterone alongside oestrogen is to protect the uterine lining, the, the lining of the uterus, and that could potentially turn into a form of uterine cancer. That's correct. So if you have a woman who's had a hysterectomy, who has no uterus, do they still need progesterone, bearing in mind what you just said about the potential breast protection? So just to be clear, progesterone doesn't necessarily protect against breast cancer, just doesn't increase the risk if the natural progesterone is used. Certainly not within the first five years of the studies that have been looked at so far. But there isn't evidence at this stage that natural progesterone will provide long-term protection against breast cancer. And so we typically don't give it uh, in instances where women have had a hysterectomy, except, um, and I think we did want to come on to this subject, in women, for instance, who've had endometriosis. Yes. Uh, in those cases, we don't want to see endometriosis deposits proliferating, uh, and we don't want to see uh, thickening of the endometriotic deposits that could lead to sort of nasty changes. And so that's why in women with moderate to severe endometriosis, we do give them natural progesterone alongside their estrogen mm. to protect against that. So having uh, endometriosis does not preclude you from having HRT. You can no, still benefit. No, not, not necessarily. It's all about weighing up the pros and cons. Sure. And if you have somebody with menopause symptoms with a past history of endometriosis and you just adapt the treatment yeah. according to their requirements. Well, that's very encouraging. How does your role interplay with GPs? I know a lot of women, certainly who contact me on social media, uh, say, you know, my GP simply won't treat me. They don't seem to have any knowledge. I've been referred to a specialist, but I can't get an appointment with a gynecologist because they're all, you know, super busy looking at really hardcore, difficult cases mm. rather than just the sort of day-to-day, -day, if you like, help and, and, and treatment for menopause symptoms. How does that relationship work between you and GPs? Well, the first thing I'd say is it's, it's in, in my personal um, life. It's a vital relationship because my wife is a GP. Oh, is she? Um, <laughs> That's good. So you've got first-hand knowledge. <laughs> and what I would say is that it's really important that we work closely with our GP colleagues and also our practice nurses because ultimately they will be seeing the majority of women with menopause-related problems. And although there has been over the last decade or so a fair amount of confusion about where we're going with menopause and hormone therapy, more and more GPs uh, now are taking a very active interest in menopause and are doing uh, the menopause certificate, which is jointly administered between the British Menopause Society and the Faculty of Sexual uh, Health, um, to enhance their knowledge uh, within this area and provide a good service in the community. I mean, I work in a busy uh, hospital setting, as you know, and the number of hospital clinics is limited. We cannot deliver the service yeah. from there. What we need is within every general practice to be a keen GP interested in women's health, interested in menopause, mm. PMS, etc., that can manage most of the cases. And then the cases where there have been difficulties in achieving the right hormonal balance or where there are risk factors yeah. like cardiovascular disease or breast cancer, uh, then they're referred up to the secondary and tertiary referral centres. So you know, GPs are vital in, yeah. this, uh, yeah. uh, in, in the management of this condition. How, how can we get better training? You know, I, I've heard 
awful stories of even these days undergraduate and postgraduates wanting to go into general practice who have little if none of their training devoted to menopause. They might spend three months in obstetrics learning mm. how to deliver babies and baby yes. care. Not every woman will have a baby, but every woman will have a menopause. How can we get that focus back well, into I, menopause women? I feel very strongly that this should be a key part of the core curriculum. And is uh, it not? Um, it should be a key part of undergraduate training yes. and also postgraduate training, not just for GPs, but for gynaecologists as well. Do gynaecologists uh, not learn about it? Come on. So menopause is within the core curriculum of gynaecological training. Being an enthusiast, I'd like to see it play a bigger part. Um, and I'd like to see more of the trainees routinely rotating through menopause yeah. clinics uh, in our hospitals. Um, the As I said, uh, we have this initiative where the uh, British Menopause Society and the faculty have this menopause certification, which can be um, taken at a basic or an advanced level. Mm -hmm. At an advanced level, you become a, a specialist within the area. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists have an advanced training skills module in mm -hmm. menopause. So it is possible to get the training. Yeah. But at the moment, I would say, do we want to see more in the core curriculum? Yeah. Yes, greater emphasis. Yeah. Especially um, with an ageing population. And let's face it, half a GP's patients are likely to be women all of whom will have a menopause. So, and 75% at least will have reportable symptoms. So it, it's, I mean, it just seems to me boggling. And the impact on life, quality of life, not to mention the, the risk of increased heart disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, osteoporosis. Mm. It seems I, to me like a no-brainer, but maybe I'm, I'm just... No, I, both <laughs> you and I feel very passionately about yeah. this. Um, uh, and... You know, menopause is now a midlife point for many women. Yeah, um, sure. I prefer to call it middle youth myself. I like that, middle uh, youth. As somebody who is has, in her middle youth. Um, <laughs> perhaps some ageing connotations which shouldn't be there. And it's a great opportunity, I believe, for women mm. to take control of their health. Mm. Um, and it's not just about hormone therapy and alternatives, but it's about optimising lifestyle, diet, exercise, minimising uh, alcohol, stopping smoking, etc. Sure. And uh, we have proposed through the British Menopause Society, we call it our vision, that every woman should be able to go along and have a menopause check yeah. where she can have a chat about yeah. these changes that she can make that to optimise her health um, and therefore all. her quality of life. And also, as you say, reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's. And I always say you spend a little bit of money now, you save a lot of money uh, in the future in terms of healthcare costs. And I know you also feel very passionately about menopause in the workplace. And mm -hmm. that's another great opportunity where you can keep women within the workplace being incredibly productive and giving back to society. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned the word there, other therapies. What is your view on the many, many alternatives, the, the herbal supplements, the different vitamin preparations that are touted as being helpful. Is there evidence that they help? There is some evidence that uh, what we refer to as complementary therapies can be of benefit. But we've talked about some of the aspects of hormone therapy being uh, confusing. And I think there's even more confusion as far as the complementary therapies are concerned. 
And that's often because the studies associated with these preparations are too short. They don't recruit enough subjects. There are a lot of variables that can affect the outcomes, etc. And so what we try to do uh, when we're recommending complementary therapies uh, is inform our patients about the evidence base mm. that there is so that they can make an informed choice. Mm. And there's good evidence that um, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy are very important in terms of minimizing the impact of menopause symptoms. Um, and uh, a number of researchers like Myra Hunter has done some excellent work in this field. Um, we did a network meta-analysis, as it's called, as part of the development of the NICE Menopause uh, Diagnosis and Management uh, Guideline, where we looked at uh, different complementary therapies. And we found that some, uh, like the um, what we call the plant estrogens, the phytoestrogens, did have some evidence. Uh, there was some evidence for black cohosh, uh, which is a derivative of the North American buttercup family. Um, and that tells there's some evidence with... for St. John's wort. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have to be mindful that just because something is alternative doesn't necessarily mean to say that it's entirely safe. And there are pros and cons to using these as well. Sure. If something's having an effect, it's doing something, isn't it? Exactly. And what a, is it doing? <laughs> a professor of complementary therapy at uh, the Peninsula Medical School, Professor Edzard Ernst, always said, so remember it, that if something has an effect, it's likely to have a side effect. That's a good one. That's mm. a very good one. So black cohosh, is that particularly used for things like night sweats? Um, yes. And hot flushes? It, it's a vasomotor indicator, isn't it, I think? That's right. It's, it's used to treat yeah. typical uh, symptoms of the menopause, like um, uh, night sweats and hot flushes. Um, red clover... Um, uh, for instance, is a type of phytoestrogen, plant estrogen, that uh, that has some benefits. It's important that an appropriate preparation is used that is controlled uh, in terms of its quality and purity, etc., and that it has in the product what it says on the box sure. that it has. Um, there's another product called Femorel, which uh, is derived from soy, and that seems to have some benefits as well. Uh, by acting as an estrogen uh, in most tissues, but doesn't seem to bind to the tissues in the in the womb or the breast. So, you know, there, there are quite a lot of um, um, interesting um, products out there that warrant more research. I always mm, say that yes. absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And sure. um, it's not that these products don't necessarily work or aren't necessarily safe but we just need to do more research we need to do more interesting there you talk about the phytoestrogens potentially not binding with breast tissue so would that be something that could be an option for somebody with breast cancer or, or having an active estrogen receptive cancer potentially but we cannot say you definitively cannot. Okay. Yeah. um because the studies that have been done thus far have not proven it one way or another mm. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just coming back very briefly to that point about progesterone, there's a lot of talk online about women taking progesterone as a mood enhancer. Now, you've mentioned not needing it to protect the uterus if, if you don't have one and its absence not being key. Mm. Do you see that it has other roles to play in the body? Natural progesterone does have some potential benefits. Um, for instance, we know that through one of the breakdown metabolites, one of the breakdown products, when it's um, taken orally, it goes through the liver, allopregnenolone, this uh, binds to the GABA, GABA, GABA receptors in the central nervous system. And this can have a calming effect uh, mm. for some women and also a hypnotic effect. So in women who have trouble sleeping, uh, we often tell them to take the progesterone at bedtime yes. because it can help to enhance their sleep. And for those women with anxiety, it can um, they can find it quite relaxing. But it doesn't seem to work in every woman. It does seem to be idiosyncratic. So it may work in one woman, but not another. Interesting. And I've also read that if you have a sensitivity to progesterone and taking, for example, daily micronized eutrogester, mm. that you can use the capsules vaginally as, as sort of pessaries. Is that something that you'd endorse? That's right. So some women, uh, perhaps again, for genetic reasons, seem to be more sensitive to the effects of progesterone and progestogens. And they can sometimes get low mood or PMS type side effects. So in those instances, we ask them to take the uh, progesterone or insert the progesterone vaginally. Mm. And in fact, the absorption vaginally is probably even better than it is orally. Now, it's what we call off license or off label. Uh, it's used vaginally for menopause purposes, 
but there are good data out there to suggest that it's safe and effective to do that. Tell us what off-license or off-label means. Okay, so uh, when a product is brought to market in the traditional way, um, a company will do research in that area uh, and then it will submit the data to our regulatory authorities uh, and obtain a product license. And they will normally have an indication for that product, for that. So, for instance, with hormone therapy, it'll be for the treatment either of uh, vasomotor symptoms, which are hot flushes or sweats, or symptoms of vulvovaginal atrophy, so dryness, pain on intercourse, etc. So that's really the indication as far as hormone therapy is concerned. Um, there are certain products which are used for that uh, indication, but haven't applied to the regulatory authorities for authorization. So that's not to say that the product doesn't necessarily work. Mm. It just doesn't have a license for that indication. For that use. So it's yes. still regulated. Um, no, if it doesn't have a license, it's not actually, strictly speaking, regulated. Right. But a GP or, or yourself could prescribe it for a different use. I you could prescribe it. The GP or the prescribing doctor uh, would be taking responsibility uh, in that instance uh, for that product. So they would essentially be um, endorsing its usage uh, in terms of its effectiveness and safety for that indication uh, because they know from experience and from the research that has been done thus far that the product appears to be effective and safe in that situation. So I'll give you an example. For instance, in our practice, we treat women with severe premenstrual syndrome with HRT, but HRT doesn't actually have a license for use uh, uh, for that particular indication. Interesting. So that may be why some women, particularly who've been active on our social media chats, have said, you know, my GP won't do this because it's off license or says that they can't do it. Actually, they technically can, but if they have not got the knowledge, and again, that comes back to the training, obviously they're going to think I'm reluctant to do this if I'm having to take responsibility for something of which I have no formal knowledge or training. That's absolutely right. Mm. Uh, it's about, um, you know, the doctor having that experience um, in uh, recommending and using that product in patients and being aware of the evidence base yeah. to confidently be able to prescribe in that situation. So in situations where uh, we might recommend a product for an unlicensed indication uh, or an off-label indication, then we wouldn't expect somebody else to do the prescribing if the, that particular healthcare professional wasn't comfortable in doing that. If they didn't know. Yes. Talking about the progesterone, there's a lot of chat online about progesterone creams, which are available. I, I think unlicensed, unregulated, often at very large cost from websites. What's your view on that? Again, I think we have to be careful about um, products that are obtained um, over the internet or over the counter that don't necessarily come with a whole bunch of sort of um, research studies behind them. Um, and progesterone cream is one of those examples where there have been some studies to look at uh, the effectiveness and safety, um, but we would like to see more research in the area. The research thus far suggests that the creams are not very effectively absorbed through the skin. 
and therefore, because of that reason, may not be as effective as people are hoping that they would be for mm. alleviation, hot flushes, sweats, for protection of bones, etc. And the other situation where we would caution against the use of progesterone cream is protection of the womb lining, where there is no evidence that progesterone cream adequately protects the womb lining in women using estrogen therapy. Well, that is really very significant and, and worrying because if you have a risk of uterine cancer and you're relying on the progesterone cream to give you that protection and you're not getting sufficient progesterone, then presumably you, you are leaving yourself exposed and, and a that potential, could potentially, potential That could potentially be a risk factor, yes, yeah. absolutely. Gosh. This, of course, leads us neatly onto a conversation about the so-called bioidenticals, because mm. I gather that bioidentical hormone treatment can include things like progesterone cream. Um, yes, so there are various routes of uh, administration of bioidentical products. They can come as lozenges, they can come as cream, they can come as vaginal products, etc. Um, and I think what we all believe in now, we're all very much sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, um, is that if you stick with the types of hormones that the body would naturally produce from the ovaries, natural estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, then you're more likely to see um, the benefits predominating over side effects and risks, let's yes. say. Now, my argument is if you have products that are regulated for that indication, um, then there isn't a need for compounded products to be used in that yeah. situation. Um, and we now know that you can not only get bioidentical estrogen in patches and gels uh, and pellets, but you can also get uh, bioidentical progesterone, uh, which is either taken orally as a capsule or inserted vaginally. So now this is, I'm going to stop you there because this yes. is where the confusion is. Yes. Because you've talked about bioidentical estrogen in gels and patches. Yes. And people often refer to that as body identical. Because mm. bioidentical seems to have been kind of hijacked, if you like, by the, those who are, um, you know, potentially unlicensed. And they're talking about compounding hormones. Yes. Where you get something that's made, you know, supposedly made to measure, if you like, in a mm. little backstreet pharmacy. And you get this unidentified pot of pills. Who knows what's in it? Because it doesn't say. And it's promoted, often at very high cost, at something that is somehow better or more natural. So I was actually one of the first people to start talking about body identical hormone therapy, which essentially means the same as bioidentical hormone therapy, which is where we're replacing the same hormones that the ovaries would yeah. have naturally produced. And I think what you're trying to differentiate between is the compounded bioidentical type yes. hormones and the regulated Right. Identical hormones. Yes. And this is a switch now that is happening in medical literature, isn't it? It's the talking about HRT that's, um, is it C HRT for compounded and R HRT for regulated? Are, are these that's terms right. that we're going to be seeing more of? Indeed. And the, that is the terminology that we've used in our consensus statement from the British Menopause Society. It's no wonder women are confused. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think it's important that um, we all understand what we're talking about, that we're using nomenclature that we're familiar with yeah. um, as healthcare professionals, and that we're then conveying clear messages mm. 
to the women that are so I think to use these products. Going forward, and this is something that I will now take on as well, is when I'm referring to HRT and these body identical, bioidentical, I'm always talking about regulated. That's the key, isn't it? Regulated hormones. We're not regulated or authorized by the health yeah. authorities. Yeah. Yes. When you look at some of the, the websites and some of the kind of mythology around the bioidentical or the unregulated, the compounded hormone purveyors, there is this sense that you're getting something that's somehow more natural and safer. What would you say to that? I think we need to go back to the WHI, really, where... So the Women's Health Initiative study. The Women's Health Initiative study where... The type of estrogen that was used was a mares-derived urine. Right. The type of progestogen that was used was MPA, which is a synthetic type of progesterone, which um, is not the natural type. And we know that one of the reasons that there were problems in WHI was that we were not using the body or bioidentical yeah. types of uh, hormone therapy. Um, and I think what's happened as a result of the alarm caused by those studies is that women started looking for alternatives yes. and didn't realise that they could obtain the natural type of hormones as alternatives to the synthetic types of uh, hormone therapy that they had in WHI in regulated varieties. And so there were a lot of women turning to compounded varieties thinking mm. that that was the only way to achieve natural hormone replacement but the message that i want to get across is that we can achieve natural hormone replacement using regulated varieties yeah. of hormones from plants from wild which yams. are plant derived <laughs> dhea now this is something that i don't know very much about but again it's something that seems to be talked about a lot online and specifically in these unregulated bioidentical style clinics. What is it? Do we need it? And is it something that we should be looking more closely at? So DHEA uh, is a precursor or pre-hormone, which is produced largely by the adrenal gland um, and is converted uh, in the woman's body into estrogen, progesterone uh, and testosterone, largely estrogen and testosterone. Um, and it can be used as a type of hormone replacement. In the UK, it's not authorised for that uh, indication. Um, and my argument is, if you're going to replace oestrogen, progesterone and testosterone in a woman, then you don't need DHEA uh, to do that job. And the problem that we have is that there hasn't been sufficient research into the effectiveness or safety of DHEA used uh, what we call systemically, so as a tablet um, to recommend its usage. However, there has been a significant amount of work in a vaginal form of DHEA, which comes as a pessary and should soon be available uh, for prescription to treat symptoms of vaginal atrophies, so pain on intercourse, uh, dry, vaginal dryness, and may even help with bladder symptoms as well. How would that differ from using an oestrogen pessary or an oestrogen cream? Well, it provides us with another option in our treatment armamentarium, the, the number of products that we can use in our uh, patients. And at the moment, it is, uh, as all types of oestrogen are contraindicated for the use in women with breast cancer. 
Even but vaginal, because it stays localised. Even even vaginal. If you look at the uh, summary of product characteristics, the, the information leaflet, even vaginal oestrogen is currently contraindicated. But people do use it for that, don't they? Especially yes, and describe I, it. I, I will come on to our mm. usage of that in those special cases. Um, but DHEA uh, potentially could be an alternative that could be proven in the future to be even safer than using vaginal oestrogen mm. in those situations because it has little or no uh, uh, effect on oestrogen levels within the circulation. Now, coming back to your point about vaginal oestrogen, you're quite right in saying that low-dose or ultra-low-dose vaginal oestrogen stays pretty much you know, within the vaginal and bladder environment. Um, maybe within the first week or two, there's a little bit of a, uh, absorption uh, into the circulation. The problem that we have, again, is long-term prospective randomized trials to prove that it is safe in the context of breast mm. cancer. One of the things, though, that we can be fairly confident about is if somebody is on tamoxifen, for instance, which they're often on after breast cancer because it blocks the estrogen receptors, that um, it's even safer to use it in that context. Mm. Um, and many women who are on these products uh, like tamoxifen or uh, going to menopause as a result of treatments for breast cancer often have very debilitating yes. vaginal symptoms. Yes. They can often be more distressing than the hot flushes and sweats typical mm. of menopause um, and um, often means that they, they have to discontinue either tamoxifen or the other group of treatments that they use, which are the aromatase inhibitors, uh, things like letrozole, for instance. Mm. Um, so it's in those women that we have to make a very careful benefit-risk balance uh, as to whether we use uh, hormone therapy or alternatives yeah. like evidence-based lubricants, moisturizers, right. and also non-hormonal options, which are coming through now. Uh, for instance, laser treatments, which yes, again, sure. That's uh, interesting. We, we need more information about mm. those sort of treatments. And also uh, another product called espemphine, uh, which is uh, in the same group of drugs as tamoxifen, but actually helps vaginal symptoms rather than mm. causing them. Interesting. Well, we're going to talk more about that, actually, in, in a separate podcast. But I, I know that um, letrozole really gobbles up all the oestrogen. So it's, sort of, it's sucking everything up, isn't it, like a sponge, whereas something like tamoxifen doesn't operate in quite the same anti-oestrogenic way. That's right. So letrozole and the other products uh, in that group so you can't prevent the conversion yeah. of testosterone to oestrogen and are typically used in women after the menopause where they're not producing any oestrogen, but they are producing a bit of testosterone, which will normally give them a little bit of oestrogen. You're taking that away from them as well. Some women are fine with it, but others get really debilitating symptoms and cannot mm. continue with those preparations uh, and alternatives have to be found. And for instance, some women are switched back from the aromatase inhibitors to tamoxifen. Yes, yeah, for that uh, reason. But tamoxifen... Is, is an estrogen receptor blocker. Right, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, it's not taking away estrogen as such, no. but it's blocking the effects of estrogen in the tissues. Mm, very interesting. And let's just finish up with a quick chat about testosterone because it's almost like the Holy Trinity, isn't it? And we seem to talk about a lot of estrogen and progesterone. And testosterone, again, as I understand it in the UK, is off-licence for women, is that right? Um, we don't currently have any licensed product with the indication of use in women. 
So we have licensed products that are used in men. Yes. Um, and what we're having to do is titrate down, use much lower doses than we would use for male hormone replacement, for female hormone replacement, typically eight to 10 times uh, less. Um, and uh, we're using mainly gels, so typically sachets, which contain five mils, and we ask our women to make each sachet last for about 10 days. Mm. Now, I think you know, before we talk further about the products, it's really important for women to realize that testosterone is uh, a female yeah. hormone. Yeah. And actually women produce three to four times more testosterone than they do estrogen. Really? Uh, people don't realize that. Um, so what happens during uh, the life course, the reproductive life course, a woman and also into uh, menopause is that the levels of testosterone decline. And below a certain threshold, some women start to get problems as a result of that. It doesn't happen universally, but they can notice things like loss of energy, loss of libido, um, more difficulty in achieving orgasm, these sort of things that when you give an appropriate, what we call physiological or natural dose of uh, testosterone to women, um, can, in the majority of cases, not always improve the situation. Mm. And is there a connection with mental health and memory and mental clarity? Yes, you know, it's very interesting you should ask that because often women describe this brain fog that descends uh, with the menopause transition. And even with estrogen, that sort of wooliness doesn't clear up. As soon as they start using testosterone, they finally have clarity yes. again. Um, and they also re regain their, their joie de vivre, if you like. So um, I think it's a really important hormone uh, for women. And um, when we talk about estrogen progesterone, we should also be talking about testosterone. There is, I would say, one product which is licensed in Western Australia called Androfem, which is unfortunately only available privately at the moment, but we hope to try and make it more universally available in the future and have other products uh, that uh, are available to women uh, which have this testosterone type effect. Do you think that as an ageing population, and we're all hopefully going to live a lot long longer than our forebears and have life in our years and not just years on our life, mm. do you think as we go into ageing well that we're going to see the benefits of more women using replacement hormones. And is there a case for starting HRT early or taking it even if you have no symptoms? Well, I always say that longevity means nothing without quality of life. Um, and so that's the first thing. I think it's important that quality of life is maintained. And universally now, the menopause societies are saying that we should not put arbitrary limits on duration of use. Of so you can take it forever? So if you ha continue to have symptoms or there is a, another indication uh, for using it, then you could continue using it forever. And I have a couple of 90-year-olds uh, who Great. are still I intend using. to take it forever, you know, that's they, for sure. They would kill me if I took them off it. For <laughs> <laughs> um, early use, then, but, do you but, think for but, disease prevention we so should be taking it earlier? That, that very important question is, are we in a situation where we can say, well, let's just put it in the water for everyone yeah. <laughs> because women on hormone therapy have a better quality of life, live longer, etc. And the answer is we're not quite there yet, uh, I believe. Uh, I believe that there are still little glitches that we need to sort out. Um, 
and find finally a product that has 100% benefits and 0% side effects and, and risks. I think it's still a case of weighing up the pros and cons. However, if I have somebody who comes along and says to me, look, I've looked at the evidence, I've listened to what you have to say, Dr. Panay, and I think in balance, I would like to use it even though I don't have symptoms. Mm. Then I would prescribe for that particular individual mm. because they've made an informed choice. We've empowered them to make an informed choice. And they may be deciding that because of lower risk of coronary heart disease, better protection for osteoporosis, bone density, protection potentially from type 2 diabetes, dementia. Are those the reasons that people, do you think, will be seeing more requests for HRT rather than just the symptoms? I say just, I'm not belittling it, rather than solely the symptoms of menopause. Uh, you very clearly outlined many of the potential benefits. Um, and uh, we also know that uh, there are there's maintenance of benefits in the skin, the hair, um, the avoidance of vaginal and bladder symptoms. How many women do we see going backwards and forth to their GP for antibiotics because they have recurrent urinary infections? What about the mood symptoms, mm. um, which are sure. often hormone-related? And, you know, frustratingly, many of these women are prescribed antidepressants instead of hormone replacement oh, therapy, gosh, we could do a whole podcast which is, <laughs> which is um, you know, a much more appropriate route for women to go down when they're in the perimenopause. Um, the ability to function at work, in the workplace, cognitively, um, which is often enhanced by being on hormone therapy. And as you say, protection of bones against fractures, but not only that, also muscle strength as well. That's becoming, uh, we're becoming aware that's in, uh, extremely important in not only preventing fractures, but also enabling uh, women to function normally, um, you know, to have that sort of energy and stamina to continue to to exercise and to you know do sporting activities and that sort of thing um cardiovascularly you're absolutely right the evidence shows that if we use hormone therapy within the window of opportunity uh particularly during the window of opportunity which is within the first 10 years of the final menstrual period that we seem to be able to achieve benefits a 30 to 40 percent reduction in Gosh. cardiovascular risk um, if you use too high a dose too late, that's where you can cause some problems. So it's about getting, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the dosage and, and the indication right. The juries are still out, I would say, with uh, regards to Alzheimer's, because you'd need to prove it definitively, a 30 to 40 year study, yes. uh, randomized trial, which we're probably not going to see uh, in our lifetimes. But um, um, there are some data that certainly cognitive problems can improve, particularly in women who've had a hysterectomy going on to hormone therapy, and observational data that suggests that women who are on hormone therapy tend to function better cognitively. But um, there are some data that suggest that if you use the wrong preparation, then it can have an adverse effect on your cognitive functioning. So these are the little glitches that I think that we need to yeah. sort out with the preparations that we're using. But ultimately, uh, I believe that we will get there. We will find, you know, the holy grail where, you know, um, that uh, that we have a preparation that has only benefits and no side effects and risks. But I am an eternal optimist. Well, Nick, I am so much more optimistic having sat here and listened to you. Thank you so much. 
And I do hope that everybody listening is feeling slightly more optimistic too about the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Liz. It's been a great pleasure. Well, that is sadly all we have time for today. But for more HRT guidance, including some of the risks that we've talked about, the benefits, and how to talk to your GP, be sure to download my e-guide, The Truth About HRT, from LizRWellbeing.com. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast here so you won't miss the next part of this fascinating in-depth menopause special, which will be in your podcasting apps tomorrow. So until then, go well. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.